the American Shoreline Podcast Network's coverage of the 2019 ASBPA National Conference in Myrtle Beach is brought to you by CDM Smith, collaborating with national agencies and local partners for sustainable coastal environments and resilient coastal communities. Thank you to CDM Smith for your support. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the American Shorn Beach Preservation Association meeting in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, show three. And we're talking to the professionals that we've met at the conference, Tyler. My name is Peter Ravella. I'm the co-host of the American Shoreline Podcasts. And this is Tyler Buckingham, uh, the other host of the show. Well, you know, what's cool about the conference and why we come is because you meet the professionals who invest their lives, their energy, their intelligence into understanding shoreline and coastal issues. And we are very pleased to have with us today two people from H.R. Wallingford, a consultancy and a science and engineering consultancy from the UK. And I want to introduce and welcome to the show Jonathan Sim, the Chief Technical Director for Resiliency, and Richard Lewis, the business manager for the Americas. What a cool title that is. <laughs> <laughs> welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast, my friends from HR Wallingford. Thanks. Thank you. Well, uh, the first thing I, I've got to say is uh, the way that uh, your title worked, uh, Jonathan, was interesting to me. It, it's, it's, it's not... M most of the uh, American coastal engineering firms, I don't think, approach... Um, the the practice the way H.R. Wallingford does. Um, and it seems like there's a little bit of a of a difference. A cult, I don't know if it's a Social science. Maybe it's a cultural difference. Maybe it's a the fact that they're an older country and they've been doing this business. I don't know anything about the company. Um, but uh, maybe there's just a, a longer history. But tell me a little bit about, tell us a little bit about this uh, company and the history of it and uh, what kind of work y'all do uh, overseas, I presume, across the pond, as well, it were. in America as well. Uh, of course, of course. But let's go back to the, the old world. Uh, yeah, okay. So uh, the company was originally set up as a, a government research lab just immediately after the Second World War to really investigate the um, the world of water, uh, particularly in the open water regime, both uh, in in in, in rivers and in in the coasts, um, and then during the era of Margaret Thatcher, it was low hanging fruit and was privatised uh, to a, a, a now a not for profit organisation, uh, and uh, that was happened in 1982. So I've been with the company now for. Uh, nearly 30 years and um, it, it's, uh, it, it's evolved quite a lot in that time. We started off uh, really doing physical models of some of these problems, uh, physical process models, and um, we now do a lot of numerical modeling, a lot of policy related work. Uh, and I came in really not as a modeling specialist when I joined, but more as a as an engineering generalist, so my background is uh, as, is as a civil engineer uh, trained, uh, trained originally in coastal engineering, although I now work across flood risk management, which including the, the inland environment. Well, you know, what's great about it is, and what I recognize, of course, is England is an island nation. 
That's it right. is the most coastal of countries. I mean, even more coastal than I'd say Australia, which has got a vast interior. But uh, England's power historically has, has been as a maritime nation. It is it is clearly a place. The famous shorelines, the famous cliffs of 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 Dover. England of Dover. I mean, so what I'm interested in, and and, and uh, Richard, you got to fill us in here. So this started out after World War II. So we're talking about 19 what late 40s, early mm-hmm. 50s as a government institution for the study and investigation of maritime and coastal matters. Fill us in on that history, and what was it called then? Well, way, way back when, I think we started out as, was it the Hydraulics Research Station? Um, huh. Uh, and I think there were some ver- a couple of different name changes, minor tweaks over the okay. years. Um, but when we were privatized, I think it was ever since then, that was 82, it's been H.R. Wallingford. And, so would this be something similar to Erdic in the United States or the Coastal and Hydraulics Lab, federally funded institute of research in coastal, originally, in its original form? In its original form, yes, as far as the capabilities that we have, although we don't have any kind of regulatory. Right. We never had any kind of regulatory. Now, you're the smart guys. You get, um, this is the smart guys yeah. who help like advise. the Academy them. of Science or something, like a, a, right? a research division, basically. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, we would be called on by various government departments for advice um, relating to coastal hydraulic issues. Well, you know, Peter, I just have to say, we're talking about uh, a country. I I just recently watched a four-part documentary, (laughs) a history of the Royal Navy, and it was hosted. It was hosted by a prince, a bloody prince. Well, they're famous, you know. Well, well, they went for a very good reason. They were a bitchin' Navy. (laughs) They were. They had it going on, man. They've always been good with the water. Innovative, very innovative. And, I mean, just the shipbuilding uh, technology. Um, And, of course, I just – the reason why I I naturally look back to this history thing is because an Mm -hmm. island nation uh, seeking to defend itself, seeking to have ports – feeding the populace, uh, at least in part, from the sea, okay. merchants going in and uh, out. Yeah. There's a relationship with the water, the land-water interface in mm. uh, the UK that I think is is yeah. maybe underappreciated by Americans that we need to talk about. Absolutely. I think there's two reasons, Jonathan, I wanted to, to speak to you. One is, uh, and I was joking about this a little bit, is in America now, there's, there's a lot of people enamored with Dutch coastal engineering technology. Um, we see it in the Corps of Engineers. They're, they're bringing the Dutch experts into, into Galveston Bay and working with the Corps. Listen, I, and we all, you know, look, the Dutch, fantastic. We know about the gates. We know about the history, you know. And, but uh, it's a little bit over the top for me, I will just say, in, in looking at that, what the reputation is versus, you know, I think there's a lot of great engineering expertise around the world and it's not, doesn't all reside in the in, in in the Netherlands in the Netherlands but the second reason is is because Jonathan when we were talking at the reception you were interested in and in explaining to me your work is the so in in the in interface of sociology and community and coastal problems and coastal engineering and that immediately registered with me as one of the critical components of project success and understanding. And so, and 
would you sort of introduce our audience to this concept that, you know, it's not all about models and it's not all about mathematics. It's about community and it's inter and, and, and sociology. Wow. Tell us what, what, yeah, what you so were I, I think introduce I'd, it, like help yeah. us out there. So I, I think I'd start with what Tyler said a moment ago, actually, and, and say I think that, you know, people do have an emotional connection with uh, place with uh, with the coast specifically in, yeah. in the UK, they have a lot of emo. You have an emotional connection with watercourses as well, that are important in in inland communities because I've worked with both, and uh, and that's part of the you know that you know the social scientists talk about the importance of both community and place, and you know you can't really effectively engage with communities about a specific problem unless you're prepared to understand on their terms what they value in terms of their community and what they value in terms of place. Now, they will be pragmatic by and large uh, and recognize, uh, for example, as the communities I've worked with that um, you know, money is not infinite, and therefore um, smaller communities are less likely to get funding for major works to improve their flooding problems, which has been where I've been focused. Um, uh, but they do also, and, and they do also recognize the challenges. I mean, uh, you know, in Europe, we have a different relationship with the concept of climate change than than, than is the case in in. in um, the administration in in, in, in in the administration in America. I mean, I think you know there there is a there's a general acceptance of the the reality of of accelerated change. Okay, people might not all agree exactly about the the reasons for the, uh, driving that, but there's a recognition of that that the problems of accelerated change. And as I said to you um, earlier on, Peter, the, the repeated expression that came through in all the interviews that I did as part of my, my, uh, my thesis work over a 10-year period was, we just want to do something. Uh, they recognize that they can't do everything to fix the problems. But um, what they realized was that they could actually if they did something, it would mean that they weren't affected as regularly by the problems as they would be if they didn't do something. So if the very big event comes along, then they're going to get hit badly. But the smaller events, they can do something about. You know, uh, I, I find this perceptive. It's, it's super interesting. Um, the first thing that you said that really struck me is this emotional connection component. And uh, it's interesting that you l lead off with that. And I love that you have science in your title because it's not often that we get to talk about emotion and science in the same sentence. Chief Technical Director for Resiliency. Okay. Yeah, it's a great so there's title. No, there's no, that's a, there's that's no, a great title. I apologize. The, the it, science I is don't, not... I don't actually know what it means. <laughs> I, the, uh, my CEO it, came up with a title. I but love it. it. But it's... It, um, <laughs> But it enables me to be almost anything to anybody, which is wonderful. It is perfect. And I don't want to interrupt your train of thought, but I, but I think it, the core of it is being technically sound, but then the overlay of, of the sociological understanding of how the community relates to and responds to the coast, 
I'm, I couldn't be more in agreement with that balance and the necessity so, of being good in those. So I, I've, it, during my career, and I'm now, you know, getting a bit gray and and worn. Wise, wise, <laughs> Jonathan. What we're talking about here, wise. Um, but, uh, you know, you've, I've seen an evolution, if you like, in thinking. Uh, when I started off as a young engineer, there was no real... Uh, uh, people didn't worry about environmental issues in the, in their engineering. They didn't worry about social issues. And then in the 80s and 90s, you saw, it, certainly in Europe, you had, uh, in common, I imagine, with the US as well, you know, the, the environmental directives came in in Europe. People started to, to take, to treat environmental impact assessment much more realistically, think about mitigation much at a much earlier stage. And then I, in the last 15 to 20 years, social sciences started to become treated much more seriously. It's not just a, a, a bunch of crazy people out there thinking about things in a way that has no relationship to real life, but they're actually investigating real human problems in a, in a disciplined scientific way. Yeah. Uh, so and 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 that has and that is now being recognised by government, the government in the UK, and they want to bring that as an integral part into their thinking. Man, okay, I want to know more about that merger, that connection, and the recognition of of technical competency. Which, at this conference, you know, this is a highly you know technical engineering group of people who look at problems and and develop alternatives and solutions that are as as good as they can be made with the best modeling and technical expertise. What we're talking about, Jonathan, and why I, I'm really interested in this, and I'm interested in the fact that the UK seems to understand that there is this balance, both of, of your rational understanding of these difficult problems, but the investment and the connection of the human beings who actually are engaged in the execution of that. I think that sounds further along than what I hear in America when it comes to coastal response issues. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. I, think I mean, I don't know if I think you it's work, a mixed. I think it's a mixed picture everywhere. I, I, I certainly am encouraged by what I see in the UK going along. Um, well, there's a couple of wonderful acronyms that they use about in the Environment Agency now about their change in philosophy. So they used to talk about DAD, which I think is a perfect word for a paternalistic <laughs> attitude towards um, communities from professionals. So it, it was, but it stood for decide, announce, defend. Uh, terrible. So in other words, you're, you're, basi you're basically making the decisions for people and then telling them and then having to spend ages defending that. And now they have a, a different, they have a different acronym for the approach, which is ED, Sounds a lot more friendly. EDD, Ed, is, is much more friendly. And that's engage, deliberate, decide. Engage leads it off. Engage leads it off. Yeah. So. And, and, you know, I'll just tell you that the reason that that registers with me, and I think Tyler is in our work uh, prior to, you know, putting all our time into ASPN and Coastal News Today, was we were working on a financial planning and special tax district creation for shoreline restoration programs and, and raising taxes you know, $20, 30000000 million, and engaging the public. And our approach, when we walked into the first workshop in the community, was to say, 
hello, we're from Austin, Texas. We don't live here. We are here to discover the answer to your problem, and we don't have it. In other words, we don't decide and, and, and then sell it. We actually didn't know and didn't even pretend to know, but started with the proposition that we want to understand, do you think you have a problem? What do you think should be done, and how can we bring forward a recommendation to your you know, political leadership from the community that represents your point of view. And the, and part of that is a complete letting go of the decision at the end. It's not, a, it's not about persuasion. It's about bringing people to understand the tension in what leadership has already understood. Like, boy, guess what? There's a serious problem on the shoreline. Does everybody understand that? Hmm. Yeah, I Step think, one. I think that's right. And um, I, I, it's not that you necessarily end up at the end of the day with a dramatically different outcome. Right. Um, but that you've brought the community along with you in the decision-making process. And I think that, that, makes, uh, that makes all the difference. Yeah, it is. It's, a, it's, a, it's almost a process argument that... Uh, you need to have buy-in and participation the entire way. Uh, One of the things that I... And there's there's a concern about cost as well. I think that's been one of the big drivers against this in the past. They're saying, you know, we're wasting all this time doing consultation with people. But actually what they found was that if they went ahead and made decisions, they'd spend all the time afterwards. It doesn't work. And, and so, okay, they've got this framework uh, that the environment agency use that they have the title of building trust with communities. And they've effectively learned from their lessons and they've actually set down a, you know, a series of steps that you l- ought to follow. It takes time. That's the reality. But if, but if you want to get people to where you uh, to a, to a place where they're on the same page as you, or yeah. you're on the same page as can them, I, whichever way around you want to put it. So can right. I follow up on so that? So one hundred percent right. Talk to us about what happens during that period of time. Yeah. Uh, that that emotional transition. Transition. How you get them to? Yeah. Right. How how is this? Uh, uh, movement happening and what what how does that happen and uh, from your like scientific perspective on this what are what are you doing to kind of move them along now here, I'm gonna just like tee it up here one of the things that I know does not work is if you go from like zero to a hundred miles an hour in a quick you have to it's incremental there are bite-size uh, yeah. adjustments that can realizations be made. that occur in the right. community understanding. Yeah, yeah so what I, happens during that time? You say well, it takes time. What are you trying to do well, during well, that so, time? So I think um, I hate using the word educate because, uh, you know, the, the, the um, educate implies a, a, a teacher-student relationship. Right. A differential in understanding. Which, which is, which not, is not really very helpful. No. Because most of the – often the leaders of these communities are quite intelligent people – and 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 have you know they you know they they're involved in their own lives with other things. Um, uh, there is a differential between I have to say uh, just to throw this one out here. Uh, a lot of the communities that I've been engaged with, my from my own research, the ones that were keen to be more involved in collaboration tend to be the ones with more professional people in in them. 
the, 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 the more economically challenged, deprived communities uh, spend a lot of their energy in their life just surviving life. Mm -hmm. So there's, they have little headroom in those communities for doing some of this other stuff. Uh, and uh, in the UK, actually, that's recognised that the social deprivation score is used as a reason for prioritising those communities for government funding. Man, okay, we're so, going to stop right there because I'm actually, I want you to emphasise this more. What you just said, I have never heard in America, that there is a social deprivation score, which means a certain capacity to contend with a new and more complex problem. Folks are making their lives day to day. They don't have a lot of room for, as you said, headroom. I love that phrase. It, are you saying that there's actually an understanding and an assessment? Nautical phrase, I would say. Well, and how you approach the problem given the, the I mean, am, am, I, am I overemphasizing this? or what, what, well, I mean, Because that is a level of understanding that I think is quite accurate, but I've so, but so really I, sophisticated. So I would say that um, what, what, all I can tell you is that the, 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 there is a, as well as having to, to fulfill the usual benefit cost criteria for a project to go ahead, there are other criteria which are used for prioritization of communities and projects. And that includes other factors like people protected, uh, in, environmental scores, if there's a particularly environmentally vulnerable area, but then also the index of social deprivation, so that if a community is more socially deprived, then it gets a few more points on the ranking. Wow. So that's basically the way it works. That's interesting. Now, Richard, um, you, you are the business manager for the Americas. Now, uh, help me out here. Is that kind of conversation something you've encountered, encountered in the Americas, whether North America, South America? <laughs> let's give it, let's do the whole Americas. I mean, it's I mean, a big, I it's never, a big territory never, you're in I am familiar with lots of rankings of government investment that deal with uh, socioeconomic factors, density of population, <laughs> uh, value of property, degree of public access, all kinds of things. But I've never heard, and, and it makes quite a lot of sense to me, that this social deprivation understanding should be considered. I mean, and help me out here, because you've, you've worked in the Americas. I've only worked in the United States. Have you seen this before, this concept? I mean, in short, no. <laughs> I, I think there are elements of some of the, the World Bank-funded projects in the Caribbean and some of the, the lesser well-off areas over there looking at um, climate security and or, sorry, mm. climate vulnerability type issues that, that do give consideration to those kind of things. Um, but when it comes to infrastructure projects and developing them, assessing them, communicating with the community, no, I've, I've not seen that. All right, so Richard, I need to ask you this question because you strike me. Now we had we had a chance to meet yesterday at the uh, opening day of the conference and uh, spend a little time together. We were mostly talking about golf, but we won't go into that. Uh, he's got, he's a good golfer. Um, is and 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 my perception may be wrong, but but the work that you're doing with the company is what felt very comfortable to me as what would be standard 
American coastal engineering, dredge material management, ports, waterways, marinas, straight down the middle. Look, there's stuff we have to manage and do and ask of the coast. It's technical. we got to be solid. That's what I do. And then I meet Jonathan, who immediately we're talking about sociology. And I'm thinking, how do these two guys get together? What do you, <laughs> what kind of company have you guys got There's going? An interesting mix of people in the company. That's, that's for sure. It is. I yeah. mean, and how does that play out? I mean, how integrated is the sociological understanding of the dynamics here? I mean, I don't know. I'm just fascinated by, I, Jonathan, I'm fascinated by how you think and what you do. Yeah. So I think, um, uh, for me, it depends on the work area that the client group that we're working with across the base. Uh, you know, some of them are looking for us just to deliver the engineering and do it to the best of our ability. And and if we're, for example, working in the oil and gas sector, the oil and gas sector have their own people that deal with communities and so on. Right. So we're just doing a niche part of 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 the work, which is generally to do with what, what we call the Met-Ocean studies that we, we carry out. So the, the studies which are, uh, which, are, which are everything to do with, with what's happening to the water in the ocean and how that impacts on the, the structures and the shorelines and so on. <clears throat> but then in other areas that we work, um, I would say there's a, a varying degree. In flood risk management, we, which has been historically my area, we're tending to do a little of this, and, and I'm involved now in a kind of a, a national review of, 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 of the different dimensions of the sociological aspects. But then, and then others of my of, uh, colleagues in, 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 the, in the water group are, are, are doing things for people like UNICEF on subjects like water sanitation and health. And and so you know that that whole dimension you know is very uh, you, you 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 can't separate out uh, if you're going to deal with 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 that subject that's called wash for for short water sanitation and health you you're you're immediately getting embedded community in, based you know, it's com well it's it, it's it's much more holistic mm -hmm. uh, and we're just doing a, a a project at the moment on. Um, on using satellite data to inform the understanding of dengue fever outbreaks in Vietnam, you know. So huh. it's so so you know that so that it's not just we're it, down with the people. It's multi it's multidisciplinary, and and that's something where the World Health Organization and various other people are involved in that project. You know, so it's it it, it you know I think it depends on the topic area that you're working in as to which disciplines you need to bring in in order to come up with an effective uh, solution to the problem. I think that that's a really uh, insightful uh, point for our audience, which is what I describe as pan-coastal. You know, we, we try to provide this broad intersectional understanding of the interconnectivity of the shoreline. And what that means is that we are bringing together people of different cultures, different understanding, different silos. Different disciplines. Different disciplines, different <clears throat> expertises, different languages oftentimes, even though they might all be English, uh, different ways of describing the same thing. And um, understanding what the, the in, in your 
particular case with the company, with the firm, understanding what the job is and how uh, how many verticals the umbrella needs to encompass, basically, is what you're talking about. And that That's what I think Peter and I are both so fascinated in, is that it seems as though your uh, expertise is in spanning uh, cultural divides and and expertise divides and creating a common page that we can all read from. And uh, so my question for you is, how did you get here? Uh, how, how, how long have you been with this? 30 years with this company, is that what you said? Yeah, yes, about 27. Have you been doing this particular, have you been offering yeah. this insight the entire right. time or the sociological perspective no, bringing no, this no, into play no, not for the whole of that time no i mean i i started my phd in in 2005 um so uh and I, it, what, on, how, how did you decide to do that uh, because i saw as i was saying to peter over uh, uh, in the reception i was i i I saw. I had seen actually through my my work in my church. I'd seen the potential of community to actually achieve some positive things, and that there was a, if you like, there was an emotional and and spiritual, spiritual, spiritual and uh, psychological, whatever you want to call it, resource there that people were prepared to invest in doing things that they believed in. And, uh, you know, I think that that's something that made me interested. And I would say the other thing about this question of divides in disciplines is that for me, and I'm, it's maybe just me because I'm one of these people that likes to spread myself across a range of things, it's because I find the cracks between what I call the cracks between disciplines the most interesting area. Because right up our alley. We call, we call them fault lines. Right up our alley. Now. So, yeah. so I think that for me, that's, that it's because often those spaces um, don't necessarily lend themselves to the traditional ways that academ academia is, is siloed and, and, you know, professors maybe don't feel necessarily that, that there's lots of good exceptions to this, but mm -hmm. a lot of professors feel much more comfortable doing more work in a narrow discipline rather than spreading themselves thinly across other areas. But we've seen a change in the UK, and I'm sure it's true also in the US, of more multidisciplinary projects where where different academics are brought together to talk about yeah. you know the, the the big challenges facing the world like the the uh, you know the 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 water food energy nexus as it's talked about you know that everything is connected ultimately to everything else right you get to you you start to consider and and I would have to say uh, that in reading what's happening in Europe uh, versus what's, what's I would say, in the um, political class, the current political leadership in the United States is different, that there is an expansiveness of thought in, in Europe, a willingness to, to acknowledge the challenges that have been presented by uh, carbon-based uh, energy systems over the last hundred years, a, you know, a, a less fearful encounter with the challenge, I think in the United States, and I don't think this is true. Of I think this is bull. <laughs> really? Come on. I the do. population in the United States is a little bit more amenable, but 
but but look, here's the thing about about the UK this year. I think I think we talked about this last last night, Richard. Is there have been months where the UK was predominantly or entirely renewable funded on wind. It's been more than 50% of the power grid in the UK multiple times. I mean, the country is obviously making an investment. Germany is obviously making an investment. The UK, I mean, the, the wind power industry, Orsted, the North Sea, you know, we're talking about wind turbine blades of 105 meters or 107 meters long, 2.5 gigawatts of power on it. I mean, the, the, the industry and the and the response on climate right now is not dominated by the United States. It's dominated by European thinkers and engineers, I think. Is that fair? I don't know. I, I, and that's what I can say. I, can I just say that yeah. I'm just going to robustly disagree with that analysis? Really? Yeah. I mean, I don't think that I don't think that's true. I mean, while I obviously agree that the current administration is um, regressive on the science and acknowledging the circumstances, I think that the deeper shit that we're talking about when it comes to kind of our perception of the world, like cultural perception, is fairly intact with that of Europe. I mean, there is certainly a cultural delta but um, the world is pretty small, man. I mean, I just look at what we're doing on Coastal News today. I mean, I can't do a – I mean, and maybe this reinforces your point, Peter, but, uh, you know, I can't go a day of doing the news where I don't encounter one or two stories from Scotland or England proper. Yeah, Wales. Uh, where we have a – uh, a story about a small beach town that is adapting because they have some coastal trail or a uh, some sort of um, waterfront area that is culturally significant, and the community is going through precisely what you're talking about, where they are confronting the same damn thing that we are confronting in our communities. Like, the reality of the situation at the local level is not in any way influenced by the the higher levels i do not believe hmm. they're still confronting the same statistics they confront storms they the data is real the science is the same hmm. they're all communicating the scientists the universities of the west are in tremendous collaboration they have been in yeah, for, the, for the past message but, well, as, but I think in response to that, uh, your two points, I think what I would say is that I, I agree. I think there's tremendous uh, technological resource here in the U.S. It's a powerhouse of, of technological thinking, and, and there's no doubt about it that a lot of, a lot of fantastic stuff is being done over here. Um, I, I what I would say is that I have a personal Speak freely, theory, a personal yeah. theory of change, which is you need three things in order to do, in, in, to develop uh, to to manage uh, manage a response to change or to achieve a change situation. You need to have uh, the right governance set up. You need to have um, some. Uh, some people who are prepared to lead the way with pilot projects, I call it genesis. And then the final G that I like in my 3G world is you need guidance. Uh, 
So you need to do them again, do them again. I like those three. Like start over again. So the first G was what? Was 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 government the right right governance? Okay, governance. Second one was genesis. Yes, leaders who are willing to take the pilot project approach and take the hits that come with the new idea. Yeah, and then the final thing is for the followers to produce guidance, guidance. Based, based on the understanding of science and the lessons learned from the pilot, from the pilot project. Interesting. And um, so I, I, I think sometimes in the US, coming back to the governance questions, sometimes the governance gets in the way, but it mm. also gets in the way in other ways in the UK. But, but an, an interesting thing for me in the whole area of... Uh, of coastal and flood risk management planning, it came up in the plenary conversation in the conference, is is what you do about land use planning. So who's in charge of that? And um, in 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 the UK, we have a uh, we have a quite a control, mm-hmm. centralised control over what you're allowed to do. Even it on helps your, even on your own land. You okay. got a good first G. So you've got some. You've got a strong. You've got a strong control there. Now mm-hmm. the American philosophy doesn't doesn't like that. No. But I think you've then got to find other ways of adapting. And I think Nicole Elko was, for example, talking about the importance of. Finding a way to do buyouts, for example, if you want to, sure. if you want to, if you want to, if you want to get the coast more logically organised, there are some people that are in the wrong place, and you've got to find a way of get sure. of, of persuading them to move. Well, sometimes it might involve dollars. It absolutely does, and 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 so during that panel discussion on shoreline development and, and risk, uh, that was brought up. Gee, I wish there was a mechanism that we could we could deal with these repetitive law structures and I said yeah there is it's called condemnation and you when you write a check if the philo- if the understanding of the issue is that this particular like we make a lot of mistakes in building things the first time in America because the we appro- build a lot of things for the first time well and and because the decision makers are without regard to the higher you know you're talking about the UK has a land management planning system that that imposes certain limitations down to the local level. In America, if the three city council members want to put the subdivision on the 10 foot per year eroding shoreline at the end of the Barrier Island, because that's going to be good for the tax base, they're going to do that and that guy's going to build it and nobody's going to say anything. What we happens? Still have, we still have those kind of issues in the UK do as well. Okay, but at least there, there, at least there are some checks and balances to make sure that that doesn't happen automatically. Hmm. Well, I mean, it, this is the one question I was talking to Braxton Davis, who is the head of the Coastal Management Program for North Carolina, who's on the panel. We're talking in the hall afterwards. Uh, and I said, you know, we're talking about one of the points that was made on the panel was, you know, if we just had a better understanding of risk, if we, had, if we could communicate it better, if we, if we could convey what risk means on the shoreline, this information would, would influence decision-making in the economic sector in a, a way that's positive. I reject that notion. I think there isn't any absence of information about risk, actually. And here's, the, here's what I think is a provocative proposition, and I think uh, um, I, I want to I get y'all's reaction to this. As much as we want to believe that we are unwilling to accept certain risks and that we have a whole industry designed to 
to compensate for that risk and shoreline management, beach restoration, all kinds of setbacks. And there's this, this enormous thinking that goes on to, gee whiz, this is the worst thing in the world. We have to prevent it from happening. What I see in reality is we don't give a damn about risk. We are perfectly willing to put more expensive structures in the face of clearly understood. We don't need any more models to know that the mid Caratuck Bridge across Caratuck Sound onto the Outer Banks of North Carolina, which will drive development on a very thin layer of sand, which is clearly risky. What is, is the problem we're having here is because we don't really understand that there's risks to putting dense and more high value development on the Outer Banks of North Carolina? No. There isn't a person at this conference who doesn't know that that's a damn bad idea. What I wonder is, why the hell are we so willing to walk into it all the time? That's what I want to know. Why do we do it? Because you know what I think? As much as the CNN pictures after the hurricane are so sad and the theft is all blown away, and there's, and there's somebody standing there with a flag in their front yard going, damn right, I'm going to build this back. And we have systems of economics that drive us to, be, to do that. The property values on Bolivar Peninsula after Hurricane Ike, after it destroyed every house but about five, went up. It is not true that, that we fear and manage for risk, actually. No, we, we, I think the coast is... That's a, I don't know if that's bullshit no, or not. No. Well, I don't know. I, I, you know, I remember having a conversation during my, during my, during my research with, with a, an environment agency officer who said um, he, he was talking about a lady uh, that lived on the River Thames in the UK um, who uh, lived in an area of, of, of pretty high flood risk and she, he said that she either was living, uh, from his perspective, she was paying a lot of money, money to live in this expensive place in England for, the, for in his view, of getting a pretty high risk. But from her perspective, it was right. living there in an area of beautiful scenery. That's what she was paying for. Right. The access to the amenity. Right. And can I just the say something else yeah. really quickly? Is that, you know, if there's 365 days out of the year, 320 of them are, are damn good. Bitching. <laughs> right. They're great. You're I mean, th this is the thing about, about coastal property is that, you know, you're looking at it and you say, it's really good when it's good. Mm -hmm. And when it's bad, it's really bad. Right. And so you pay for it. And I think that, that I think that's how we digest that risk problem that you're talking about. It is, and because we focus, we focus when we talk about these things, we always just weight it on the. You know what we do a really poor job of here at this conference? I'm, I'm going to just shout it out. What Jonathan thinks about? I think that's what it is. Well, we do bad about that. <laughs> well, we do got, we do a bad job of talking about the benefits of the coast, mm -hmm. the beauty of it, how we, why we value it so much. Right, and why that we helps us seem to act irrationally in the face of risk and why we continue to put ourselves. What I loved about that, there were two factors you said drove your sociological understanding. One was, the second one was place. Yes. Which is an amazing word and a very deep and rich understanding of how people connect to location and identity 
And, and, and would you talk about that some more and why, if you're completely boiling this down to risk-based assessment, would you be like, it's irrational to be here along the Thames, just get, pick that up and move that damn thing, move and land, that's dumb. That's how the, that pejorative understanding of, of that person's decision is quite incorrect, I think. And no, it, I think it comes back to this uh, question that we started off this, uh, this podcast with, which is about the emotional connection that people have with place. And, um, you know, I'll tell you another story, which was, uh, uh, which was given to me by a, a very senior person in the Army Corps of Engineers who was asked by a very well-to-do friend, should I buy this property on the coast? And he said... He, in his response to him, he said, it's a fantastic place. Have you got a million dollars you can afford to lose? Because he said, if you've got, a, if you can afford to lose a million dollars, buy the place. Yeah, and this gets into one of the underlying currents of what we all talk about and work on professionally here, is a greater understanding of risk, a greater understanding of building codes and setbacks and all of the things, assessments for shoreline management. Think about it this way. We're not talking about whether or not people will invest in property on the coast. We're talking about who is going to invest in property on the coast. We're talking about a socioeconomic transformation. The story you're telling about the person say, if you have a million dollars, write the check. I'd do it because in what we're doing in the understanding and sophistication and management of shorelines and imposing costs on coastal communities to contend, right, is we are selecting who is there. We're not selecting whether people are there. In fact, we're driving the coast toward more expensive, more dense and higher value because we're going to take, look, you don't need federal flood insurance if you write if you write a check for your house. But the only, the, the only thing I would say is the reason why you do need some control in this situation is because um, basically in rivers and on the coast, anything you do somewhere has an impact on somewhere else. That's the simple law of coastal engineering, if you like. It is. And, it's a good and, law. And, it's all about downdrift and impacts. So th and, and therefore, you can't completely allow people the freedom to do what they want, however much, however big their checkbook is. Understand. It's the legitimate basis, but, but, well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, what a great conversation. I've kept Jonathan here too long. Jonathan Sim, Richard Lewis. H.R. Wallingford, a consultancy on science and policy and engineering from the UK. What a great conversation. So glad we ran into you guys. This is why ASBA, ASBPA it's, is I mean, so great. Yeah, it's, Jonathan, it's, it's kind of you are, I mean, look, I think what you talk about and the perspective you bring to the table is, uh, is really rich and deeply important and I think underappreciated. So thank, thank you very much. Thank you, thank you very time. much. Thank, thank you. you very much. Some will cry because they're fried and someone who's loved him has died.